Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. Let's jump in. Let's start this morning's talk. We're in a series, and uh, I want to ask you this question. There's a famous singer, and uh, he had a famous song in the previous century, and who can finish the line with me? And he sang it like this. I can't sing as good as he is, but he said, I did it. Oh, a few of you people really like went with the tune. Let's, let's hear that again. I did it. Wow, this is, man, Dorothy, we should do choir again this week. Is it? Yeah, what? Maybe, eh? That's last, who was here? Wasn't that awesome last week being like a big choir together? That was great. Thanks, Dorothy, for helping us with that. Um, that is a famous line sang by Frank Sinatra and uh, previous century. And he, he was famous for that song and many others. But think about that line for a second. How many arguments have happened with the tension between your way and someone else's way? How many arguments, how many arguments have happened with the tension between someone else's way and your way? Think about a conversation with a friend, with a parent, with a sibling, with a boss or an employee. Uh, and I'm thinking about even our, even our youth that are hanging out with us today in the gathering, thinking of, of kind of things that go on in our lives. Like, I want to do it this way and you want to do it that way. And uh, it's, it's really about the ways we do things. And uh, that song is important because it shares a sentiment in the human heart that's become very prominent uh, in our modern world, especially the last couple of hundred years, which is an individualism that has grown that I want to do my thing, my way, my life. One of the biggest obstacles, I think, to people discovering who Jesus is and, and understanding who Christ is, is when his followers, Christians, do things their way and assume it's God's way. When, when Christians say, I'm doing this, but I'm telling you, God's behind me, trust me. Or when they're mad about something or want to talk about something and they kind of just pick and choose a verse randomly out of the prophets or the Psalms or something and say, see, see, how, see what God thinks about this? And too often, one of the biggest obstacles to the world discovering Christ is Christians doing things their way, their assumptions, and assuming it's God's way or kind of wanting to put God's stamp of approval behind it. But I think when, when we read the scriptures humbly, and humbly is the important adjective here, there's often aha moments. Like, oh, God's way is different than my way. Oh, God thinks differently about this than I do. Oh, God, God thinks differently about money than I do. God thinks differently about the way I pursue relationships than I do. Oh, God has a different view of victory than I do. Oh, my nation is not God's favored nation. I didn't realize it. I thought my nation is God's nation and every other nation is not. And so we're the best. And too often our ideas become labeled as, as God's ideas, too often. And, and we're going to read we're going to read a text this morning, Revelation chapter five. We're in a series in, in Revelation four and five called called um, "Grounded from Above." And I think this is one of the most significant parts of Scripture that challenge our way. One of the most significant parts of Scripture that that challenge the ways we think versus God's way. If you got your Bible, you can turn to it. And uh, we've been in and out of these two chapters the last couple of weeks. 
And this chapter, verses chapter 4, takes a little shift in this vision that John is privileged to, to see God's space, to see heaven, God's realm. So here's how this vision continues in Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, and we figured out that this is God, the one seated on the throne from chapter 4. In his right hand, a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Actually, I'm reading from my version, and I think the version on the screen is different. So I'm going I'm to switch, okay? I'm going to read that question again. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Our prayers matter. And when and they sang a new song saying, "You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth." And then I looked and the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, they circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Did we have the right version on the screen I was reading? hope so. Did it? Was it? No? Oh. Maybe? No? Ish? Ish? <laughs> Just blame the Greek. Um, I'm just joking. I, I, you know what? Let me, let me, uh, then I, maybe my version up here was right and I should have read it. Anyways, I'll stick with it. See what happens. Don't worry. One word won't throw us off, promise. So I love this chapter. This chapter is so significant. It's like a portal to read the rest of the New Testament, the rest of Revelation, possibly even the whole Bible. I think it's a New Testament summary of what the church believed about Jesus and the gospel. This chapter helped the church, led the church, helped them understand why we worship Christ. 
But it starts with this question, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who's worthy to open this scroll? Here's God sitting on the throne. His right hand has this scroll um, back and, you know, written on the front and the back. Seven seals representing completion. It's like this executive order in God's hand of what's going to come next. God's going to work. God's going to act. But right in this scroll is what's going to happen. It's God's plan for humanity. Many people call it the eschatological vision. Big word, but eschatology is big. Basically, the idea of, of the fulfillment of God's future. So it's this vision of how God will redeem and restore the world into eternity. It's God's goal for humanity and for creation, for you and me. But there's a problem because the, the scroll is closed. And if the scroll is closed, then it can't be executed. It can't be laid out. And so it's, scroll, it, it's closed. The message is hidden. The plans are unseen. And how will God get this thing going? How will this plan unfold? It must be opened. But no one can open it. No one's worthy to touch this. No one's worthy to grab it. And so John weeps. It's a tragic moment. John represents himself. He represents the early church. He represents you and me. He represents all of humanity, representing this wondering, how will God make things right? How will God execute justice? How will God bring his plan about? And John weeps, representing all of us, because if we stay stuck in brokenness, if we stay stuck in sin, if the world stays stuck in, in injustice and unrighteousness, and how will God make things right. And why is no one worthy to open this scroll? And then he hears one of the elders of the 24 elders in that scene tell John, John, don't weep. Someone's worthy. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David. It's the identity of God's Messiah rooted deeply in the whole story of Scripture, in the story of Israel. The identity of God's Messiah, the, the Lion of Judah, one of the tribes of Israel who later from that tribe, King David became king and one of Israel's most famous kings. And out of that line continues to Jesus Christ's birth. In a sense, the Lion of Judah will rule like a lion. He'll be royal like King David. He'll have this royal rule and power. He's worthy to grab this scroll and in fact he will go and take the scroll out of God's hands. Now just for a second, this is so important because this is a thread throughout all the scripture. You and I, as, as humans, we are image bearers of God, but we're a cracked image of God. God created men and women in his image, but his image in us is cracked. It's broken because of sin. So humanity is broken. And we know this. The relationships we long to have with God, with each other, with the world often feel broken. And God wanted to bring, wanted to change that, wanted to show the world who he was, and so he chooses a, someone named Abraham, and Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has these 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the tribe of Israel, and the tribes of Israel, and God, through this nation, wants to show the world who he is. One of the problems with Israel is they're human too, and they make mistakes, and they are broken, and so we have broken humanity and broken Israel. And Jesus shows up as the true human and the true Israelite. Jesus shows up as the only one who can restore a broken humanity and restore a broken and failed vocation by Israel. And this is, I just want to say this because this is so important, how we tie in Revelation 5 to the rest of the scriptures. 
What John sees next is completely challenges his expectations. Completely challenges our expectations of who God is and how God works. Have you ever had like a full expectation of something and then something happens? You're like, I didn't expect that. This happened to me last night in the most frivolous way. We took a drive, uh, uh, my wife and my son and one of his friends, and we went to this Starbucks off-island. And um, so I was not going to have anything. And I'm like, ah. And then the, the, the beautiful picture of the caramel mocha crushed, uh, you know, sea salt uh, frappuccino was just like calling me. So I'm like, you know what, that looks awesome. I think I'll just have like whatever your small version of that is. You know, they call it a mezzo. So I'm like, okay. And, and, and uh, it looked amazing. And then I take a sip. I'm like, oh, gosh, this is not what I thought this was going to taste like. And then my son is like, Dad, stir it. Just stir it. And, like, you'll mix the flavors. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I stirred it. It tasted better. But it was sweet. I'm like, is this, like, 1,200 calories in this thing? So it was totally, like, I looked at the picture. I'm like, this is what I see. This is what I want. But when I took a sip, it's like, this is not what I want. This is not what I saw. Complete change. Now, I told you it was a frivolous metaphor. But, <laughs> but here's the thing. This is one of the most important scenes in Revelation. The elders tell John, don't weep, the line of Judah's here, the root of David's here. But when John looks at the throne, he sees something different. He sees a lamb near the throne. Very different. John hears about a lion, but he sees a lamb. He hears strength, but he sees weakness. He sees or he hears about, oh, this lion is worthy to open the scroll. But then when he looks, he sees a lamb. Verse 6, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. The word for that is slaughtered. Standing at the center of the throne. Slain, slaughtered, past tense. This has already happened. And in this moment, we see an image of the crucified Christ reflected in God's space. In heaven, it's like the focal point of this scene is the crucified Jesus. The one worthy to take the scroll is the one who died, is the one who was slain, is the one who died under Rome's oppression, is the one who took on the sin and violence of the world. You know, Protestants and and evangelicals, particularly often scoff at a crucifix. You know, they see a crucifix, they're like, oh no, Jesus is off the cross. And it's true. He is. He resurrected. It happened. But it's fascinating that in the middle of this heavenly scene, we see a lamb that was slain. It's like this image is the image that John needs to see, and it surprises him. you got to stop and just realize how shocking this is. Because here's John getting this vision from an island called Patmos under Roman oppression and rule. He's, he's in prison. The churches he's written to are struggling. The early church is struggling. People are, are often dying at the hands of, of the empire and the emperor. And John is hoping to get through these gruesome, violent attacks and, and this opposition and oppression. And he would hope for a lion to come and save them. Like, awesome, the lion's here. The lion's going to save us. The lion is going to fix this. God's victorious Messiah. But he looks and he sees a slain lamb. Humanity's hope, our hope, right, is that 
How do we get through evil? How do we get through injustice? How will, how will God make all this right? And we're hoping ideally for a strong, powerful, brute force to destroy our enemies. And that's partly our human nature. You know, it's like, awesome, here, the planes are coming, the tanks are coming, the helicopters are coming. They're going to destroy our enemy. We will never have to worry about this. But it's the lamb who takes on the violence of the world and dies under it. So the centering vision of heaven is the crucified Jesus. A Canadian author, Joseph Mangini, says it's the most decisive moment in all of Scripture. It reflects the gospel. It reflects the message of the New Testament. It reflects the truest part of who God is and how God works. This is so important for us. I wrote this on the screen. The lamb becomes the lens to understand God's nature and God's ways. The lamb becomes the lens to understand God's nature and God's ways. When we ask the question, who is God? This scene gives us God's identity revealed in Jesus. When we just wonder, who is God? What is God like? We see his identity revealed in Jesus. We can go three ways with this, this vision. We can say Jesus is a lamb, but he takes on the nature of a lion to defeat the enemies. We can say Jesus is a lion, but, and then he denies the power of a lion to take on the way of love. But both those don't seem fully right. Or we can say Jesus is both lion and lamb. He never ceases to be the lion, but he remains the figure of power as a lamb. So the seven horns on his head reflect this idea of power. The seven eyes around him reflect this sense of wisdom. Mangini writes again, it says, His power is realized precisely in the self-giving love he displays on the cross. Just think about that for a second. His power is realized precisely in the self-giving love he displays on the cross. This is counterintuitive for the world. And it even surprises John in that moment. He hears about a lion, but he sees a lamb. And the lamb takes center stage. As much as Jesus is the lion of Judah, the lamb takes center stage. And onward in Revelation, we never say we worship the one who sits on the throne and the lion. Have you ever, have you ever read that? No. We worship the one who sits on the throne and the lamb. Because the image of the lamb takes center stage in Revelation. We worship the lamb of God. John the Baptist didn't say, oh, when he saw Jesus for the first time, he's like, oh, awesome, the Lion of Judah who's come to take away the sins of the world. No, if you go back to that text, he says, oh, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. Incredibly, later in Revelation, in John's vision, he sees a beast come out of the sea that represents opposition to God's will. And this beast also tries to mimic the Lamb. But in Revelation 13, 11, when we say, it says he's trying to, he, he's, he appears like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. Because one who longs for power in that way could never express that in self-giving love. So the beast is faking it. He's faking the image of a lamb. At heart, he's a dragon that wants to destroy. The truest power is demonstrated in love. God's identity is revealed in Jesus, and God's ways 
also, his nature is revealed in Jesus. How God works, how God accomplishes his will, how God tells us the kingdom of God grows like a mustard seed, how God reminds us constantly through the scripture how God wins is not like the world wins. And if we want to win even for God's kingdom, for God's purposes, for the church, and do it in the world's ways, it never works. One author says it like this. It's on the screen. He says, the lamb is God's mode of involvement in and commitment to the world. The lamb is God's mode, the way God is involved in the world, the way God is committed to the world. God's way of working in the world, God's way of defeating sin and evil is demonstrated through the way of Christ. It's the best reflection of who God is and how God works is Jesus. And he's slaughtered. He's slain. It's the image from from Exodus when, when God comes to save his people and they slay a lamb, the Passover lamb that rescues them from the punishment of that rebellion. When, when, when Israel's trying to be reconciled in relationship to God and other people, the sense of sacrifice is often there in the center. It restores broken relationships. But then Isaiah sees the suffering servant as God's Messiah, one who would suffer to save humanity. And you just pick these images the Passover lamb, the reconciling sacrifice, the suffering servant, which is a key image of, of what God's Messiah is like. And you bring them together and we have the crucified Christ. So we have this view of God as a power. See, too often we have a view of God like he's some powerful tyrant or he's some militant commander in chief. Or he's the king with the most nukes in the world. That's where we're like, God has all the artillery to destroy all his enemies. Revelation 5 confronts that view. Revelation 5 says, no, that's not the God. That's not what God's like. You've been mistaken. If we have a view of the church being this triumphant force in the world that's going to take over, or this triumphant force in the world that's going to force everybody to be like God wants us to be, if we think that we're going to politically or financially or through, you know, uh, culture and multimedia are going to force the world and make the, make the church win, Revelation 5 confronts us on that. That's not the way of God because it's not the way of Christ. Dallas Willard once said that churches should have more discipleship classes on how to bless those who hurt them. And more discipleship classes on how not to echo the behavior of our enemies. If we're, if we're in the middle of our day and somebody's coming against us or there's oppression or a revolt or something that, that just feels like this is attacking me, one of the ways of Christ is not to echo how they're coming against us. Imagine John and these seven churches. They're struggling they're struggling under oppression. They're struggling under the persecution of Rome. They're struggling under even the poverty that, that they've experienced, some of them, because they've been marginalized. And they, if, if they had any sense of how they could overcome Rome and this persecution from secular and religious groups by beating them, by destroying their enemies, this vision confronts them. As, as, as this vision is being read to these churches, these seven churches we read about last month, I mean in chapter 2 to 3, they're, they're still listening to this vision, just like us. And if they have this thought like, oh, God's going to destroy everybody because he loves us, Revelation 5 changes that, confronts them. 
And if we forget this theme in this text, that helps us see what the whole New Testament is about. I like what Michael Gorman says. He says, we're doomed to success in the wrong way. We're doomed to success with a defeat, dangerously far from God's way. Let me ask you a question. What's worse than failing at something? What's worse than failing at something? Maybe, not doing it. But I would add this. Success in the wrong things. What's worse than failing is being successful in the wrong thing. Isn't it true? And so if, if, if your success at work is going to destroy your colleague, maybe success in that moment is not the best thing. If, if your success is going to destroy a relationship, if your success is going to estrange, you know, um, disconnect you from your family or your son or your daughter, what's worse than failing? Succeeding at the wrong things. The church can sometimes be successful at the wrong things. And Christians, when they, you know, label their ways and say, no, God's behind this. Success at that could be the very worst thing that can happen. Can be one of the worst things that can happen. See, and the Lamb tells us who God is and how God works. Who God is and how God works. See, and this is important for us as we even read Revelation later on. Because we often read the rest of Revelation, you know, all the, the real crazy images that we're going to read in chapter 6 to 19. We read them with the lens of a lion. We read them with this vision of a lion. It's kind of like, like someone who wants to fix something and the only tool they have is a hammer. Like Josh who was playing drums today, he's an electrician. Imagine the only tool in his kit was a hammer. Imagine you went into someone's house or a commercial spa and he's like, can you wire these wires and fix this? And, and he's like, yeah, no problem. He does it all just with a hammer. How many holes are going to be left in that place? If, if the only thing we have is a hammer, then every problem we see is a nail. And if the only way we read the rest of Revelation is with the ferocious power of a lion then we, we might be missing how we're supposed to read Revelation. The lion is important, but the lamb takes center stage. And too many of us read Revelation with a hammer in our, a hammer in our hands. N.T. Wright said, the victory of the lion is accomplished through the sacrifice of the lamb. The victory of the lion is accomplished through the sacrifice of the lamb. Listen, listen to, to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, uh, 23 to 25. Actually, I read off the screen to make sure we're all reading the right version. So th this is Paul. He's writing to this first century church in Corinth. Tell me if there's a connection here. The Jews demand signs and the, Greek, the Greeks look for wisdom. Another version says the Jews look for power. The Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greek. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, Christ, the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Do you see the contrast? Where's the power of God? Where's the wisdom of God? We preach Christ crucified. The Lamb is center stage. 
the power of God, the wisdom of God is reflected through the cross. But humanly speaking, we're surprised because that's not how we function. That's not how the world functions. C.S. Lewis did a great job of describing this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when he's painting a picture of this other world called Narnia and the ruler of that world or the king is Aslan the lion, the Christ figure. And uh, there's the white witch who's there as well. And, and, and this is how we see Aslan the lion, strong and you know, full of strength and power and everything. But there's a moment because... The witch has one of the kids, and the kids make a mistake, and this kid Edward, you know, makes a terrible mistake, and the witch says, well, he's doomed. And Aslan says, well, wait. I'll, I will take his place. I'll, I'll rescue him. And so this ferocious lion dies instead of Edward, this boy. And here's the image. So the ferocious lion is slain. And the two girls are with them. And when, when they were first looking at that scene, or the scene is being built as C.S. Lewis describes it, I mean, they were, they were shocked. They're like, how can this happen to Aslan? He has all the power. He has all the strength. And so the image of the powerful Aslan on an altar slain. And Aslan later says, the witch didn't know that there was a magic far greater than the one she relies on. The witch didn't know there was a plan far greater than her plan. That creation in Narnia didn't realize this initial foolish act on Aslan's part was actually the path to victory. That the lion who seemed conquered in that moment was the exact way that Edward would be saved. The exact way that the lion would win by dying. But the lion conquered is not the way the world understands victory. It's just not how it works. The world doesn't think that way. But God's ways are different than our ways. Richard Hayes says this. Here are these two quotes. Central mystery of the apocalypse or revelation is God overcomes the world not through a show of force, but through the suffering and death of Jesus, the faithful witness. Richard Bauckham says, Christ's sacrificial death belongs to the way God rules the world. The symbol of the Lamb is no less a divine symbol than the one who sits on the throne. And then we end, didn't Revelation 5 end? To the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Both are worshipped. God and Christ are worshipped. And Jesus is seen as a Lamb. This is so important for us. And I just want to pause for a second because this is so significant for how you and I read Revelation, for how we listen to other people talk about Revelation, for how we interpret the rest of Revelation. It's like kind of like when you get a map, like who, who loves the treasure stories, like, like National Treasure, that movie with Nicolas Cage, or other movies that talk about that, or the Treasure Island movie or stuff like that. All these maps, and there's one from Treasure Island, like they usually have like a key, a couple of keys, like you look at the map and you're like, okay, let's follow the map. But then there's often clues or keys or symbolism or things that actually help you discover the map as you move forward. And, and it's amazing that these keys help you read the map. So some of us read the rest of Revelation like a map, but we miss Revelation 5, which is the, one of the most important keys to reading the rest. If we interpret anything later in Revelation that contradicts what's revealed about God in Christ here, we're off track. It's a simple thing. 
If you're reading Revelation 6 or 12 or 18 or 19, and you're like, you're interpreting it in a way that goes off of Revelation 5, you've missed the key. The key's there. That's really important. And so this leads to this final thing, and we're going to end with this, is God's future is accomplished through God's ways. God's future is not accomplished through your ways. God's future is not accomplished through the kings of the earth ways. God's future is accomplished in his way. And somehow the crucifixion of Christ stands in time as a moment that is not just something that happened and then we revert to a different kind of way. That is the plan. That was the plan. That is the victory right there. And when it says that Jesus conquered, when it says that Jesus was the faithful witness, it means he was faithful to the task at the cross. He's not waiting for another task. He's faithful to the task at the cross. Now, there's going to be some bold action on God's part to curb sin and evil in judgment in how God deals with the evil and injustice in the world. We're going to read that. But ultimately, we got to see that God's ways pass through the cross. God's ways pass through the cross. So here's my question as we end today. I'm going to invite the team to come up to help us respond to this. Simple question. Whose way are you grounded on? Whose way are you grounded on? Your way or God's way? Some way that's maybe been popular or seated. It's amazing how we can just kind of jump on a bandwagon. You know, something's kind of tweeted or posted like four or five, t- five times, ten times, a hundred times, a thousand times. This post got a hundred thousand views. And then it spread. To- and all of a sudden it becomes like truth. And we're like, this must be true. This is exactly how God works. It's like, no. Whose way are you grounded on? Your way or God's way? Think about that. How are we reading the Bible? How are we interpreting Revelation? Revelation 5 is our lens. Christ crucified gives you the better lens. But there's more question. How does God win? God wins. God makes the world right. But Revelation 5 tells us how. How do we follow Jesus in today's world? Revelation 5 helps us understand how we follow Jesus in today's world. We don't just do it our way or the world's way. Because sometimes the things, the very things we succeed in are the wrong things to be successful in. And we think we're doing right. We think we're succeeding. But we're just succeeding in a way where, where kind of the goal that we've created has been so mixed and matched by this idea and that idea and that cultural narrative and, and this thought and, and this person and this political influence and this person in media that we, our goal is so mixed, we don't even know how to detach it. How do we follow Jesus in the world today? We follow Jesus in the way that God leads us. The crucified Christ shows us the way. How do we influence the world today? God's way shows us that and how we see it in Revelation 5 is we don't influence the world today and try and win the world over in the ways that the world wins the world over. This is important because whatever you win people with is what you win people to. If you win people with, you know, the money and the power and the the, the victory kind of idea, if you win people with that, if you win people over with a promise for prosperity or a promise for this, 
well, that's what you've won, you've won them to. And then they, they struggle to follow Christ because there's always a tension in the way of Christ and the way of the world. And it's like, oh, sorry, we use the way of the world to win you to the way of Christ. That's why you're really struggling with this tension every day. How do we influence the world? Revelation 5 gives us a better way. And here's the beautiful thing. This is how God saved you and me. This is how God rescued us. You and I are not rescued from our sin because God went and, and, and used the early church to topple the oppressors. You and I are not, we have not discovered who Jesus is or experienced his forgiveness God, because God ended up destroying the enemies in the world. Jesus took on, absorbed, embraced, experienced the violence of this world, the sin of this world, took it on. That's why we can know Jesus. That's why we can experience forgiveness. That's why we can find freedom. Because the way of God is different. And so none of us following Jesus have come to Christ in our way. It's only through Christ's way. That's the way to freedom, the way to healing, the way to hope, the way to God's future. And this is how God saved you and me. This is what we, we celebrate. Let's take a moment and just bring this to the Lord. And maybe some of you here, maybe you're following online. Um, you want to embrace Christ. You want to follow Christ. You want all, you, know, you want God to lead your life and guide your life. And this is the invitation, you know, why we come to the cross and through the cross to be in relationship with God. It's been his way all along. So I invite you to come. And as you come, as you take that step, if that's where you're at this morning, just to bring your full self towards him. And the beauty of it is when we bring our full self, even all the rebellion and ugliness and sin and detours of our life, because of the way that God has done this, he doesn't allow that shame to rest on us, but he removes it because of the way Christ won this victory. Christ took that on at the cross and died with it so you and I can be free of that. Then I invite you to put, place your trust in the Christ who lived, who died, who was buried and resurrected to find full healing and hope and relationship with God. God, we just come to you right now and we thank you, we thank you I know many of us here in this room and watching online know you deeply and that has been made possible because your ways are right. Because your way in your Messiah, the true human, the true Israelite who lived and died, was crucified and slain. Your way accomplished that for us, not our way. And there's nothing in human ingenuity or human power or human strength or human effort that could have done that. But you did that. And we celebrate your way. 
And some that are listening right now, Lord, that long to step into a life that you long for them, God, may they see this invitation through the way of Christ as the most beautiful one. And then, God, may we, as followers of Jesus, live out the way of Christ. God, as early as this afternoon or tomorrow morning, we are going to be bombarded, we know, with invitations to execute things in our way, in the ways of our world. We're going to be drawn into a movement or an idea or an ideology that is going to tell us that we could win in this way. We could win in that way. We could find hope in this way. We're going we're gonna to beat the enemy in this way. But God, may we be reminded that the lamb is the lens to understanding who you are and how you work. And may we embrace that in our day every day. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.